Um, it was entitled, When God Changes His Mind. And through my time here this week, and even well into last night, I felt very strongly that I should go a different direction. So it's safe to say that God did change his mind. <laughs> and we're going to pursue something that I feel God has put on us for such a time as this kind of a thing. If you have your Bibles on your phone or whatever, we're going to be in John chapter 9. And as you're turning there, just a little bit of background for me. So I was a youth pastor for a very long time in the West Coast and then had the opportunity for uh, the denomination that I worked for to be their national youth director. And one of the perspectives that you get in a space of a national leadership position is a responsibility to provide a vision for a direction that you will go. And in this case, our denomination had about 2,500 churches, and I was um, had the amazing privilege of trying to say, where is God taking all of our youth ministries this year? Asking God to do a work. And so as I, as I took that role on, one of the things I wanted to make sure of was that I wasn't just spouting out or trying to lead people down a direction that I thought would be cool. Instead, I wanted the perfect vision. And I knew that that could only come from one space. And so I began to ask God for a word that would lead what I was calling the future generation of the church because I spent a lot of time working with students and I had a grave concern for them that they were entering into a Christian faith that was more so in neutral and less so in drive. And part of the reason why that happens is because we place a lot of emphasis on this opportunity of accepting Jesus Christ into our lives, bringing him in and saying that he has cleansed us from all unrighteousness, that we are now made perfect and holy and can stand before God, can hear and understand the scriptures, can be moved by the spirit of God. But I saw so many at that point stop right there. That that acceptance for them, many, and myself when I was younger, was ultimately the triumph, the finish line. And what I found was, willingly or unwillingly, a regression in their faith. It was as if the furthest that they got to God, or closest they got to God, became the closest they ever got to God. And then from that moment forward started this life of Christian neutrality, which ultimately led into this space of questioning and doubt and fear and not understanding. And then, in some, almost a frustration as to why they ever went down that path because nothing ever came of it. Well, we all know that there's lots of reasons why things like that happen in our lives because we are humans. We are people. We are the non-perfect, linked together by Christ with the perfect, with an overwhelming desire to be bought by him continuously, not just once and for all, but every day. That we are allowed entrance into this life with God that is not just a simple high five on a Sunday or a Wednesday night when your youth group meets. But it is a long lasting run on sentence with the creator of the universe. The one who spins galaxies with his left hand, with his right hand intimately wants to know what you're doing and what you're thinking and how he can work in your life. That's the beauty of the God that we serve. But so often we reserve that for certain times. And sometimes, like weeks like this. 
So the question becomes, how do we flow out of something like this? This is obviously, if you've been around the Christian life long enough, you know this as a mountaintop experience, right? Those spaces in which God seems more real, seems more alive, seems more, more evident, more I can reach out and touch him than he does in some cases. And those mountaintop experiences are very key and pivotal for our relationship with Jesus. But we know for every mountain there are valleys, right? And the question then is how do we journey? And I believe that the only way we journey is with vision. Vision that comes not from our own entrepreneurship, vision that comes not from our own abilities, our own skills, our own trade, our own might, but vision that comes from Jesus Christ alone. Vision that is parallel to those of us that were blind now can see. Without vision in this life by Christ, we know not what to do. We hope and we cross our fingers. And we kind of, man, this better be the right thing all over the place. But we really, if we were honest, we don't know what we're supposed to do. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As Jesus went along with his disciples, he saw a blind man who was there from birth. His disciples were quick to ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man, the blind man, or his parents, that he has been born blind? Now, this is an interesting question, not to spend too much time. The disciples and all those around Jesus at this point in his life were trying to key in on his understanding of the scriptures. They knew that he was bringing something different. They knew that he was kind of busting through some limitations that were constantly in place at that time by the religious order. Jesus was pushing through and many were confused. The disciples themselves were journeying with Jesus and in this space of confusion, mostly the three years that they were in ministry. And Jesus would try to define and redefine his goal on this earth. And he would do so both in what he said and what he did. So they wanted to know his perspective on historical sin, generational sin. They had been told that people have these these maladies, they have these deformations because of the way that their parents and the parents before their parents had lived. Therefore, they suffer the consequences. And then Jesus' response is beautiful. But before we get to Jesus' response, just for a second, let's step into the shoes of the blind man. There were no advancements for blind people during Jesus' day. There were no Braille maps. There were no Braille menus. There were no Braille on the side of the world. There was no advancements for those that were physically handicapped. There were no wheelchair accessible ramps in Jesus' day. There were no advancements that would allow for any activity for those that were marginalized and pushed off to the side to engage in society. That's just how it was. Blind people especially were just a little higher than animals. Especially if you were born blind and the question that you had on your mind all the time was, why am I this way? Why is everybody else seemingly get something that I don't have? And then all of a sudden, one day, there's a group of people, a small group of people standing around you. And you know that they're there. They're talking about you. And one of them asks a question that you forever have asked in your mind. Why am I blind? Why can't I see? And then this man, this one who speaks with some kind of authority, you don't know him, but there's something about the way he is that you are leaning in yourself to hear what he says. And now here is Jesus' answer to this man. Verse 3, neither this man or his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God may be displayed in his life. We look at that 2,000 years later and we say, Jesus, what a beautiful Christian response. We see what you're doing. You're linking the deformity and the depravity of who we are as humanity. And you're going to be glorified through through the redemption of this process. And if you know the story, you know he's going to be healed. But you're not if you're the blind man. 
what you've just been told is the reason you've been blind your whole life is that some God somewhere can get glory. How does that make you feel? Having said this, verse 6, Jesus spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which this word means sent in the original language. So the man went home and washed, went to the pool and washed and went home seeing. Now at this point in the story, I really don't know which is more ridiculous. The fact that this man is sitting here on a normal day for him being placed on the outskirts of town. When he's hungry, he puts out his hand and asks for something to eat. When he's thirsty, he puts out his cup and asks for someone to fill it. That's his day, every day. And here comes a man who has told him something that he's never heard. And then he does something very ridiculous. He spits in the mud and he wipes it all over your face. Again, we look at this 2,000 years later. We're removed from the situation. We look at it and say, oh, I can't believe that Jesus is doing this. He's showing us that it is not by anything that heals, but by Jesus and the Father alone. It could be dust. That could do it. But he doesn't know that. All he knows is, bros, bright mud all over my face. And not only that, he says, hey, blind man, do me a favor. With all this mud all over your face, get up and walk over to a pool. And when you get wet, wash your face off, and then you will see again. It's a ridiculous request. But this man agrees. Whatever and whomever Jesus is, he is compelled to get up and walk through all by himself town. With people screaming out to him, where are you going? I'm going to a pool. What are you doing? I don't know. Why is there mud on your face? I don't know. What's going to happen? I don't know. But we walk. And he walks to the pool and he washes his face and he sees. greatest day of his life has now come. The day that he has been longing for forever, to not be blind anymore, to see as others around him have an ability to see. He washes his face in the pool and suddenly there's color where there never was before. There are images where there never were before. There is scenery where there never was before. Things that he has only heard, now he associates with images and pictures. He has vision. What does he do with this vision? He goes home. Because the man who did this to him said, you will go home. And as he's walking home, something strange starts to happen. His neighbors, those who knew him from sitting on the corner and begging, they came up to him and they said around him, hey, isn't this the same man that used to be sitting here every day begging? Some claimed that it was. Others said no. He only looks like him. But he himself insisted, no, it's me. I am the one. The beauty of this grand day in his life starts to get a few cracks. Crack number one, people who knew him before, because he has vision, no longer really recognize him. And that seems strange to me because I'm not sure what happened in the time between when he washed his face and walked back to home. He did not stop off at a barber and get a brand new haircut. He did not stop off at his clothing store and buy a whole new set of wardrobe. He just went from somewhat cloudy, blackish eyes to whites and pupils and irises and vision. And because of that, people didn't recognize him. 
pause here for a second. If you have received a vision from Jesus this week, if you have been baptized, if you have made a decision, if you have sealed a contract with him to say something like, Jesus, because of you, I will not, or Jesus, because of you, I will fill in the blank. If you have done that, here's one thing I'm going to tell you to expect. People who automatically always recognized you because of a vision you get from Jesus might start going, man, I don't recognize you right now. What's going on in you? Something up. Right? There will be people who always have been surrounding you knowing what you have seen. You come home from something like this. They're going to attribute it to being out in the sun too long. And you're going to start to question, what's going on in me? Well, whatever. The blind man says, or the no longer blind man says, I don't know why they don't recognize me. But the people around him started getting more frustrated about this. They asked him, well, then how were your eyes opened? He said, well, there's a man. His name is Jesus. He made some mud. He put it on my eyes. He told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So I went. And then I saw. Where is this man, they said. Kind of a discouraging moment from Scripture. He replies, I don't know. So you have to understand that at this point in time, many were frustrated with Jesus. Not everybody was on board with his campaign to be the savior of the world. There were many who thought that he was not. Many that thought that he was blasphemous. Many that thought that he was breaking down rules and laws and legalization that he should not be doing. And because of that, they were constantly looking for ways to catch him, to get him into trouble. See, the day on which this took place was the Sabbath, the healing. And as we'll find out in a minute, probably not great timing. The people around the man who were asking him about how he got healed decided to bring the Pharisees, the ruling order, the religious right, the ones that came in that decided what was just and what was clean, and they brought him in and said, hey, we have a question. This man was blind, but now he can see. It's the Sabbath. Now the Pharisees are involved, and they asked him, hey, how did you receive sight? And he has to recount again what was going on. This man, he came up to me. I was just sitting there. He put mud on my eyes. He said, go walk to the pool. I walked to the pool, and I came home seeing. How did I do it? I don't know. And now the Pharisees are excited because they think that they've got Jesus. They've got something against him. See, on the Sabbath, this, this, holy, this holy sanctified day that they set aside, there were very few things you could do. You could not heal on the Sabbath, which Jesus just pushed right through that. Pushed right through their understanding of what is right and true, and said, I can heal when the Father is on me to do so. So he healed on the Sabbath. Another thing you could not do on the Sabbath, you could not make anything, right? You could not even manufacture with two hands little cakes of mud made out of saliva and dirt. But he did. He made them. Didn't have to, but he did. The third thing, you could not walk further than the allowed amount on the Sabbath. There was a certain limitation to the distance you could walk. And you better believe that the distance to that pool went beyond the limitations of what someone could do on the Sabbath. So they're very excited about this opportunity. And then they begin this grand inquisition. They bring all the people in and they want to know what was going on here. They're eager to take notes. They're eager to act upon Jesus' actions. But people still doubt that this was the man that had vision, or that was blind before. So they decided to call his parents in. Okay, so here we are, verse 18. The Jews did still not believe that he had been blind, and he received sight that day until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they said. The parents come into the, to the picture. They say, yes, he is our son. 
We know that he is our son. And we know and can confirm that he was indeed born blind. But, they said, as how he can now see, you're going to have to ask him yourself. The reason they said that, the reason they would not stand up for his story was because they were afraid. They were afraid that if they gave testimony to something that Jesus did in his life, that they too would get in trouble. Because here's the deal. To, to so go against the order of that day meant that not only would, would you be a discouragement in that society, but you would physically be removed from all the comfort, all the safety, all that was around you in the synagogue and those people that were, quote unquote, your family. So they did not want to lose that. So they said, we will step aside and not give testimony. He can answer for himself. So, normal day. Guy wakes up, he's blind, meets Jesus, sends him to the pool, washes, has vision, has sight, should be the greatest day in his life. Walks up to people that knew him, they don't recognize him. Has his parents stand up in front of a whole council of people, they won't get on his side. Jesus is ruining his life. He's ruining his life. A second time, verse 24, the Pharisees counseled together. They summoned the man, and they, now they are getting more and more upset about the scenario. They are no longer willing to just take a pat answer that he was the blind man. They want to dig down into what Jesus was doing. They said, give glory to God right now. In other words, tell the truth. We know that this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus. Here we go. If you underline anything in your Bibles, something, underline this. Listen to his reply to the Pharisees who are railing against him, trying to convince him that it wasn't Jesus, or trying to convince him that this was nothing really that big of a deal. He says, whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. That was not available for argument. No longer. See, sometimes we think, man, my testimony, i got to talk about Jesus. I don't know the Bible well enough. I don't know Jesus well enough. I don't know what's going on. My friends, if you can simply attest to the fact that you were blind and you see, you have what you need. You do not have to complicate it. You will grow in an understanding and be able to communicate it further as life goes on. But there is one simple thing that Jesus has done to all of us that have allowed us into his, our lives. We were blind. We were broken. And now we see. He had no other response. He had not time to get a theological degree. He had not time to read all a bunch of commentators about the scriptures. He only knew the simple thing that Jesus did in him. And as you leave from here, you might have had a simple thing come into your life. You will give testimony to that which you know that God has done in your life. They asked him again, verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He told him again, a third time, a fourth time, this is going not well. For this young man. Again, if this is your day, if you have been blind your entire life and Jesus comes on you and gives you vision, you want to go out seeing. You do not want to spend your life defending what has happened to you. That you are actually that person. But this man cannot. He cannot live this day that he has. There's been many a student that I've talked to in my life and many an adult that I've talked to in my life. That will say things like this, Jason, it's so hard for me in my life because I am a Christian and my parents are not. Or I'll talk to a spouse who will say, I am a Christian but my spouse is not, they do not see. Please understand that the vision of Jesus in you, the thing that he points your eyes and tilts your head to see, that he might be asking you to see, right, in this Christian life, not only may it not be recognizable to those who are friends of yours, acquaintances, those who see you, but it might also be 
something that people that are related to you do not see. The vision of Christ supersedes all of those things. This is why we need his vision and not ours, because if we try to do things on our own accomplishments and our own vision, right, we will try to get rally everybody around that, and we will be concerned that everybody understands that. When you have a vision from Jesus, the only one that needs to be concerned about what you see and how you see it is him. We don't have to be concerned with what everybody thinks about what it is that we're trying to accomplish. It does not mean that we, we take away love from people that we know or want them to understand and experience the salvation work of Jesus. That does not mean that that is not there. But I'm talking specifically about how you go forward with the vision that Christ has given you. There will be people that do not understand it. There will be people that do not see it in you. <clears throat> Towards the end of this story, the council gets together. They meet off to the side. What they're trying to determine is what to do with this man who now has vision. And they're also trying to determine what do we do with the one who supposedly gave him this vision. I love this one part, though, when they keep persistently asking him what's going on. And finally, give this, listen to this answer that this young man gives to the Pharisees. Listen, I've told you, verse 27, I told you a hundred times, and you're not listening. Why do you want to hear it again? Perhaps you also want to be his disciples. He pushes it right back onto them. He understands that they're wanting to know. And so he says, maybe you are starting to doubt what it is that you are so firmly holding as that thing which guides you and directs you. And you also want a vision from Jesus. There are be people that want the vision that you have. But instead of saying, hey, I want that, they will push against it. Pray that God will give you the wisdom and the vision to see through that just like he did this young man. Well, that didn't really make them happy. As a matter of fact, it only ticked them off further. And they finally concluded... With this statement, verse 34, you, talking now to the man with new vision, you were steeped in sin at birth. That's why you were blind. How dare you lecture us? And then they kicked him out. <clears throat> the equivalent, the equivalent of saying if this is the... If this is the safety and the security, if this is the place where we all find our identity and being, it's as if one of you is singled out, asked to leave, and never to return to this place. You are gone. Why? What did you do? Nothing. Jesus ruined your life. He came on to you, gave you a vision, pushed that vision down, and then almost got you to the space where people that you know and love all walk away from you, and now you lose because of the vision that Jesus has given you. All sense of safety, security, and well-being. Especially those that of you that are younger in this room. Please understand that if you ask for Christ to give you something to see, it will not always match your comfortabilities. Beyond just those of us that are young, those of us that are older, those of us that are in charge of things, those of us that are leading things, as we consider what we will do in the future, the vision that Jesus gives us will not always parallel or coincide with our comfortabilities. They will not always be the thing that makes it easy for us to jump into and say, man, I'm so glad that Jesus gave this vision. Do you think this man enjoys the conclusion of his day based on what Jesus did in his life? I don't see any hands up. I don't see any offerings being made. I don't see any joyfully running around like David. What I see is a young man alone because Jesus ruined his life. Let me say one thing about the word ruin because I've used it a couple of times. And sometimes that word has heavy meaning. 
In life now, when we say you've ruined something, we mean that you broke it. It's, it's no longer useful. It's ruined. But here's the thing. Jesus did ruin our lives, all of us. We were destined for life without God. We were destined from an eternity away from that who created us. And Jesus came in and ruined that destiny. He comes in and breaks the sin and breaks our destiny and ruins our life. And when he does that, that separates us from the world. When he ruins our life, it separates us from things that are probably normal, things that are occurring normally in our lives, things that, things that are predictable, things that are comfortable. He separates us, and when he gives us vision to go forward away from him, sends us out, man, I'll tell you what, that vision really, really starts to separate us from that, which is comfortable, normal, regular. I intimately know people in this space here that have very heavy decisions in front of them and things to decide. I know people in this room that have a vision, and that vision is very heavy to bear. That vision that they have is something that is controlling who they are. It is right in front of them. They have decisions to make. Now, when you have the physical blindness to vision, there's not much you can do to go back to blind physically. But the vision that we have, that we have received any calling from Christ here this week, we have a decision of what to do with this vision that we now have. Here's the last bit. This is what I love about Jesus. The scene is a desperate one. The scene is a young man out by himself down the way, wondering what just happened to him today. Wondering why it ended up this way. And Jesus heard that he was alone, and he found him. Lest you think that anything that Jesus would put on you, that he would not accompany you with it, you are wrong. Anything that Jesus has asked you to do, anything that he has asked you to see, he will find you. He will be there with you for it, even as uncomfortable, even as disjointing as that might be going forward. He is there. And now we have this beautiful display, this beautiful conclusion of this young man who was born blind and now has vision. Jesus found him in a field. He walks up to him and he asks him a question. Do you believe in the Son of Man, which is a name given to Jesus? Do you believe in the Savior? Do you believe that God would send someone to take away all of our sins that we might be with him? Do you believe that there is a man that could be fully God and fully man here? The man with new sight said, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I might believe in him. And in a very rare appearance, in a very rare proclamation, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, Jesus takes the time with this man to tell him, the one who stands before you now is him. Jesus proclaims himself to this man. He didn't just heal him from afar and wish him luck on his journey in this new ruined life. He came and he found him in his ruination, stood with him in that space, and revealed his omniscience, his omnipotence, right? He revealed his omnipresence to him, the full measure of God in him. He puts right in front of this man with newfound vision. And this man's response must be ours. It says immediately he believed and he worshipped him. Some of you in this room have been given vision for great mighty things. Some of you in this room, maybe having a conversation about, about human trafficking, have had this vision for how will I accomplish this. I want to be a part of that. Some of you have a vision for people back home where you're at. 
<clears throat> some of you have a vision for societies, the music industry, the festival industry. Some of you have a vision for your family. Some of you have a vision for yourself that Jesus is putting in you and you are seeing it and you want to know how will I accomplish it. Here is the only way you will accomplish the vision that Jesus has given you. Immediately believe in Jesus and worship him. That's it. But you and I are going to try to remember how do we accomplish this thing. And you're going to set up systems and processes and programs to be able to accomplish the vision. Because your end goal really is to accomplish the vision. That is not Jesus' end goal to accomplish the vision he has given you. It is to drive you straight into his presence every time you are there with it. What do you have a vision for? What do you have a vision for? What do you want to see? What has Jesus turned your head, positioned your eyesight to see that maybe nobody else has been asked to see that? And here's the deal. What was it that Jesus said to this man when he asked why he was blind, when the disciples said, he has been born blind, why? So that he can receive sight one day. No. He has been born blind so that the work of God may be done on display in his life. As you pursue the vision Jesus gives you, the work of God will be on display. That's why. So, we either work to solve a bunch of problems. We either work to make things like human trafficking and poverty and hunger and thirst and all these things which I am very much concerned about go away. But then what is our legacy? That we made a problem go away. Which really will just leave space for another problem to enter. So if we want to make problems go away, if we want to make issues go away, if we have a vision for those things, here's what we do. We immediately believe in Jesus Christ and we worship him. The band's going to come up and they're going to lead us in a final song of worship. And here's what I want you to do. To take whatever God has done in you this week or has been working in you and he has completely brought to the front of your plate this week. Whatever that vision is, I want you to immediately believe in Jesus and worship him. The vision of Christ is given to us not that we could accomplish anything that the vision would accomplish, but that we would see Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have met this man. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have stood in front of him. And in the most beautiful declaration of worship, in the most beautiful way, the original intent of this language is that when this man realized it was Jesus, he believed, and then he got down on his stomach and on the ground flat and reached out and he grabbed the ankles, the sandals of Jesus, the one who stood before him. And that is the position we are left with. Where once there was a man with sight alone out in the woods, now there is a man with Jesus out in the woods, on the ground, in full display of worshiping the one who gave him the vision. We do not want the vision. We want the one who gave us the vision. That's what we want. We do not want to be ruled, or we do not want to idolize the vision. We do not want to fully give ourselves to a vision. We want to give ourselves to the one who gave us the vision. Because he, my friends, he is the only one that can accomplish it. He's the only one. Lord, we ask that you would instill within us a burning passion for what you do. We ask that any vision that you have given to us this week, anything that you have opened our eyes unto, we will give credit to you and you alone for doing that. We will not give credit to an environment. We will not give credit to a situation. We will no longer or wish to no longer be ruled by human endeavor in our lives. But we want to walk away from all things saying, I have no idea how that happened. If God was not at the helm, if he was not driving that into me, I have no idea how to explain that. And so God, for all those visions in this room, we say, we believe in you. And now we worship you.
stand. Those vision catching weeks. Not vision casting. Businesses do vision casting all the time. How do we propel our vision? How do we encourage everybody to see our vision? This is like a vision catching week. That's what this is, right? We come here and through, and through beautiful and wonderful music and artists that have, that have labored to create something that they feel is at the heart of God to give to you as a deposit, not so that you would buy anything, but that you would continue the vision that Jesus has given to you, right? We have weeks like this where speakers, they strain their vocal cords in the woods. Why? Because they want to understand, they want you to see the vision that Jesus has given to you to pursue Jesus, the one who gave the vision. This, my friends, is a vision catching week. That's what this is. And so, use it for that. Sometimes maybe we wonder, what are we to do with weeks like this where it just seems like it's a giant, giant God pep rally? It is. There's a place for that. There's a space for coming here and worshiping Him and being overwhelmed by this recklessness of God's extravagant love for us. But this is a place where God, for 40 years, has met people and has given them vision and pushed them through. So next year, you come to restore the vision from the one who gives the vision. Next year, you come to catch the vision. And you say to people, I know a space where God speaks to me. And I know a space where Christ comes in and dwells me and sees and helps me to see things that he wants me to see. That's how you engage in a week like this. Now, the blessing from Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, we now stand before Father in heaven from whom this whole family on earth is derived from. I pray now that out of his glorious riches, out of his storehouses of grace, out of his storehouses of mercy and abundance of love, that he rips those wide open and sends that showering down on us. And because then what will happen is we will have strength. Strength will come to not only the outside of who we are, but the inside of who we are. It will strengthen us at our core with power through the Spirit so that Christ may dwell richly in our hearts forever. And then I pray that you, leaving here, being now rooted and firmly established in this love, may have the power to, do go, to go home and do something so amazing. To go home and to start grasping and understanding just how great and how wide and long and high and deep the, the love of God is for you. And when you start to try to contemplate Him, when you start to understand Him, it's just at that moment that He pushes Himself out wider to go to the place where you really can't contain that which we only see dimly now, that which we only know partly now, will be fully known. But for here, we pursue that understanding so that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. Did you hear that? Of all the fullness of God, not just to look like Him on the outside, not just to sing the songs about Him, but the fullness of who God is, is in us. And now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than anything we could have asked this week, and anything that this week we could have imagined could happen according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church. To Jesus Christ, the one who gives visions throughout all generations. This will affect your grandchildren. This will affect your grandchildren. Think about that for a second. God, may you go from generation to generation. And will this vision not just be ours for next week or ours until we return here, but will this affect the generations beyond us? And all of God's people in one resounding amen say, amen. You are blessed. See you next year.